Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, uh, here's a thought. I work in uh, broadcast television, and we'd go to the uh, convention every year in Sandy, uh, in Las Vegas, and buy new equipment. And uh, it's a curious thing. Broadcast television equipment tends to be really, really expensive. Uh, an up, an upgrade to equipment might cost. Uh, two or three million dollars and uh in that industry you're kind of you're weighed or measured by your programming the content that you create with said equipment and it kind of dawned on me early in the game that yeah we can buy any flipping equipment we want but it's the people that sit down and run it that decide if it sings and dances or just kind of takes a nap so to speak it's um it's a curious thing the human element the human element in perhaps any intention whether it be a church or a company or a uh a community, the human persona is, is I think, the the missing component, so to speak, as far as untapped potential. I don't think, I don't think, even from an individual's point of view, you, the listener, I think it'd be impossible for you to exhaust your potential in this lifetime now as a multi-dimensional being a soul that is shoehorned into a physical body when you recognize that that element of you your soul will gladly feed you inspiration now and now and now for the rest of your life but as we've talked about so many times on this show, to be able to capture and then honor and then fulfill or manifest that inspiration is perhaps the the missing piece. And tonight's show, I'm really excited about this conversation. The topic tonight is the name of a book. The Zen Executive, and our guest tonight is Jim Blake. We're going to bring Jim on in just a minute. But I want to go back to this this human persona, this human component of anything that is is looking to be fulfilled or manifest. The I think the the curious thing about if you look at the wake of humanity, if you look at the mindset of the collective, we have this thing called normal, and maybe we could even throw in the word expected. Remember a long time ago in 2019 when we had a, a, a quote, normal sense of life? We, we all had our normal lives 
that we pretty much had a a good grasp on what to expect. We had a good grasp on um, what our life would look like from year to year. And then the proverbial cart tipped over. And now the idea of normal is kind of up in the air. I'm I'm not sure humanity has uh, conjured up a new normal yet. I'm well, I'm positive, and maybe the old normal is still falling apart. But this gives us a really powerful opportunity. When I mean normal by its very nature means more of the same. If this is the quote normal unquote thing that happens, there you have it. It's a pattern. It's an established pattern, and our egos can like that sense of normal. That, but that normal, that normal behavior, that normal expectation, yeah, can come up shy, can come up short when the proverbial cart tips over and we have to create a new dynamic, a new narrative for ourselves um, perhaps as a company, perhaps as an, an organization. And so I'm, I'm really delighted to have this episode tonight where we can look at the, the, the power of, of the, the human component, the, the human persona that is involved in all um, company operations and I think Jim's written a wonderful book to bring a, a spiritual perception, a spiritual pers- perspective at at just what this um, this human element can offer companies. I think we should get to it because I'm sure we're going to run out of time. Again, the the topic tonight is the Zen Executive. And our guest is Jim Blake. Today's business environment requires a new kind of leader, one with empathy and flexibility. But how do you bring this sort of clarity and vision to your business? In Jim's new book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership, he looks at at practical spirituality as a foundation for good leadership. Drawing from his experience as CEO of the 130-year-old spiritual nonprofit, Unity World Headquarters, and a lifetime in corporate leadership, Jim provides advice on how to lead teams, companies, and communities while maintaining alignment with your principles and integrity. That's got to be a dance right there. Genuine and thoughtful, Jim illustrates his ideas with stories from his own experiences in a conversational and approachable style. The book is broken into four parts, starting with some guiding principles, then moving into work-centric practices like mission statements and leadership styles, then provides recommendations on how to make it your own and use this foundation in your day-to-day work life. Join me in welcoming Jim to the show. Jim, it's so nice to have you on the show. It is my great pleasure to be with you this evening. Thank you for having me. 
you know, when I was looking at your book, um, I always find it fascinating how our our upbringing, the, the, the family dynamic, if you will, that we're born into sometimes has this catalyst or polarity um, that that ultimately ends up influencing our life purpose. Now, you kind of, uh, you had an unexpected twist in your childhood, and and the idea of leadership was, should we say, thrust upon you. Can you can you give us uh, uh, an, some insight in into how leadership was instilled in your family? Sure. So <clears throat> when I was pretty young, six or seven years old, my my father left and it was my mother and I, and I would say about a year had passed and um, she had met a new fellow and uh, brought him home. And this gentleman was retired at the age of, I think, 38 out of the Marine Corps. And he had served multiple tours in Vietnam and had been in command of, you know, at, at times over 300 men. And so coming out of that 20-year career at a time when there was really no diagnosis for PTSD, my first experience of sort of his leadership or leadership in general was very much fear and intimidation and command and control. And uh, so I spent a a lot of time, you know, walking around on eggshells, and he went from command of 300 to just me. And I did unique things in the neighborhood. When I say unique things – I would have to get up in the mornings and uh, police up the grounds, as he would say, which basically means pick up all the sticks and rocks and trash in the yard every single morning. My hangers in my closet had to be, a, a, you know, a certain a certain uh, measurement apart, usually about a quarter inch apart, uh, with the clothes hung in accordance with color. And so it was just very, um, very much like <clears throat> being in the military without being in the military. But many of those qualities and principles, and so. Although the leadership style was harsh um, and the way that he sort of, of raised me was very harsh in terms of, of some of the, uh, the verbal abuse and things of that nature. But as you mentioned, there were also some interesting qualities. So I learned, you know, that uh, that's not necessarily the way I wanted to lead because I knew how it made me feel. But the other things like organization and preparation and doing things right the first time, those also stuck with me uh, as I moved on into my my formative past my formative years nice well now fast forward to now and and you're you've written a book about enlightened leadership the uh the idea of uh, perhaps the old school of businesses and corporations there's the the image of um, management or upper management that dictates the the behavior and expectation of employees and um, your performance has to be up and if your performance isn't up you'll be reprimanded up to and including termination and it's kind of a um, the old school could be seen as like a one-way street where things are dictated from above, but in, in your book, you're talking about a different dynamic. Can you give us uh, an overview of how your leadership 
perception would take that on? Sure, <clears throat> and I'll end up I'll end up at some point talking about a particular leadership philosophy, which uh, there are numerous books and organizations around called servant leadership. But but let me start with the idea you mentioned it. So everything hinges on performance, right? Everybody wants engagement, they want performance, they want all of those things. And so let's start with the self, and I'll, I'll hearken to I'll, I'll equate this to a professional athlete. So professional athletes have trainers and doctors and dietitians, and they spend all of their time readying themselves for their job and to be at peak performance during that. Well, there's something we can learn from that. The healthier we are in terms of our own self-care and preparation, so sleep, diet, hydration, just basic fundamental taking care of ourselves, um, the higher and greater our performance will be. So think about going to work and having to make multi-million dollars, really complex decisions when you've had two hours of sleep and you haven't eaten anything versus you're well-rested, you got a massage the day before, you're feeling quite content, and now you're faced with these decisions. All of a sudden, you're making a different set of decisions. Now, if you take yourself out of the leadership role and now you're an associate and I work for someone who is leading through fear and intimidation, like you mentioned, and so I'm scared to death that i got to keep my performance way up and I can't make a mistake and I'm certainly not going to bring forth any creative ideas because they'll think they're dumb, and I'm just going to you know, be in this state of sort of anxiousness the entire eight hours that I'm there. Here's the tough thing. We can't leave that at the office. So some people leave and go home with that same anxiousness, and it carries into their family. It carries into maybe a, a road rage situation on the way home. Um, so there's, a, there's a, a new understanding I think we have to adopt as leaders that we have tremendous influence over not only how our teams perform, but how they show up in the world. And so when you can adopt a different style of leadership that is supportive and uplifts and inspires people and they feel seen and heard, they're going to naturally be engaged. And they're also going to be relaxed enough to give you their greatest level of performance, which means they're performing well and the organization is performing well. And so if I tie all that together, a lot of it is based on, on you know, starts with, with ourselves and taking care of ourselves, not only, you know, physically, but spiritually and mentally and making sure we're fulfilled and then creating that same opportunity for the people that we serve with. And there are a number of ways that I talk about in the book of how we do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. Well, now, if I'm listening to the show and I'm a um, a manager at work and perhaps the company hasn't embraced any of, of these ideas, how can I <clears throat> dip, dip my toe in this stuff? How can I um, introduce uh, new ideas um, in a workplace that perhaps has had a, a much more rigid, c- confined environment? Well, I can tell you my experience, Wes, that's a great question. Um, all my time in the corporate world, what I really, what really landed with me was the things and cultures that don't work and the leadership styles that don't work. And so for me, I just started incorporating these changes into the teams that I was responsible for. And at first, I had small teams, and then they got progressively larger, you know, up to about 100 people. And each time, I would continue to employ this different style of leadership. And here's what I would say. <clears throat> I was always kind of different. <laughs> so I spent some time in the utility <laughs> industry, and, and I didn't lead like everyone else. But 
our teams performed at a really high level. And those that I served with really enjoyed the way that, uh, that we led. It was more collaborative. They felt seen and heard and supported and all of those things. And so it wasn't really the greatest fit for me uh, in a lot of cases in, in terms of just because I was different than the other leaders. But certainly from a performance perspective and the relationships I built with those on my team, we were every bit as good as anyone else, uh, but just our people were performing at a higher level and much more relaxed and engaged than maybe some other areas of the organization. Much more relaxed and engaged. So I would imagine those employees went home feeling much more uh, satisfied and fulfilled, being able to contribute, being able to engage without that fear element. Do you think that that's a good measuring stick for managers? I mean, because you got to imagine there's uh, CEOs or, or the top guy of a company that's that's looking at the last two years and perhaps the numbers have come down and they really need to reinvent the wheel if they're going to stay in business. How do you how do you measure your that the metric of your employees from the employee's perspective as far as feeling um, fulfilled and and feeling um, really excited about their jobs? Well, let me say a couple of things to to put some people at ease because I know this question is ultimately going to come up. But a lot of people think that, oh, Jim, you can't lead this way. When you lead this way, you're not able to hold people accountable and you're a big doormat. And what I'm telling you is that's not the case at all. You can still hold people accountable. You You just do it in a more humane and conscious way. You don't have to demean or belittle people or humiliate them into, into performing better or threaten them into performing better. You can still hold them every bit as accountable. Hey, here's what we're expecting you to do. Here's what's not happening. You know, how do we close this gap together uh, to get you performing to where, where you need to be? So there are human ways to, to overcome that. And in terms of <clears> – hang on one second. Excuse me. Sure. <clears throat> And so um, once you've got that, that in place with the ability to, you know, the confidence now that you can hold people accountable, you would basically do the same measurements that you would for, I guess, any other way you were leading. You're going to still look at the same things in terms of how you're measuring. If you're looking for feedback directly from the associates, the way we do it is um, a simple quarterly, we call it a pulse survey. And so lots of people used to do these big annual employee surveys and, and get all the feedback. We do them quarterly and just check in. And sometimes we theme them on certain topics and other times we, we freeform them. The other thing is uh, a practice that we use is uh, we call it around uh, our workplace walkabout Wednesday, where I ask every member of the executive team to walk around to a different division in the organization and just mingle, mingle, visit, get to know the associates, give them an opportunity to have access uh, and FaceTime with you. You'd be amazed at the things that you can learn, the ideas you can get, and and so many things can come from just those casual conversations when you're talking to the people that are directly working with your constituents. So that kind of direct engagement, lots of opportunities for that, whether it's, you know, after work social engagements, the walkabout Wednesday, or surveys, those are a handful of ways where you can really keep your your hand on the pulse of the organization and, and how the associates are feeling. 
Nice. Well, how how do they respond feeling like they have the ear of management and feeling like they um, their voice is heard? What I would say is it transformed our culture from the, and I talk about this in the book, but from the perspectives of trust and respect. When you have this sort of separation from leadership and the associates, there's always a gap there that then creates this, this gap in trust. Um, and so they're never quite sure if you're telling them everything, you're telling them the truth. Um, they, they may, there may always be this sort of underground narrative that something is being held back. But when your executives have these kinds of relationships that are you know, more in direct communication, the trust and respect factor goes way, way up. And so it manifests in just this really candid dialogue. If they don't, uh, if you know, something is not working, they let you know, then you have an opportunity to work on it or tell them how you're going to work on it. And as long as you, as you communicate what you're going to do and then follow through, that trust factor just continues to go up. And, and what happens is um, because that trust and respect is there, um, the entire sort of culture begins to rise, if you will. And so then when things get tough, um, basically everyone comes together and sort of rallies together around whatever the issue is. And so a, a great deal can be established foundationally when you can create that, that space for candor and, and the opportunity to really build some trust and respect between leadership and the associates. Well, very nice. Like I, I've mentioned before in this episode, a lot of people have to reinvent themselves. A lot of corporations have to reinvent themselves with the new dynamic um, in this very changing world. What if I, the manager, what if, what if my mental constructs, my mental agility, or should I say the lack of agility, is what I'm actually bumping up against. Because if you're talking about listening to the employees and and invariably you're going to get new ideas, how do you uh, how do you weigh? How do you know? I mean, because um, a lot of companies have a pretty thin profit margins. If you break the cart it's going to fall apart. I mean, how do you, how do you know how to integrate ideas that might not even make sense to you, the manager? Well, I can tell you what we did and it was kind of unheard of in a nonprofit, especially, but we, we really worked to create a culture of innovation. And I, I talk some about this in the book, but how you do that is like, we've already created a pathway now to receive the ideas. So now you need a process for capturing them. And then you just need a handful of people who can sort of help you vet those ideas in terms of whether or not they might, may or may not be effective. But here's the kicker. The kicker is you got to be okay with pulling the trigger on one or two of them and be okay with failure and understand that a failure in an innovative initiative doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean the company's a failure. It just means you've gone down this path it didn't go the way you wanted. So what can you learn from that? Can you learn something from that for the next iteration? Can you learn that that's definitely not the direction you want to go because of the way that it failed? But you have to, we have to get beyond um, this, this construct that failure is the end. When something fails, that's the end. Because it's really not. It's just a part of the process. And thankfully, 
you know, about a decade or so ago, Silicon Valley really jumped on this and authors uh, and business leaders all over did and started, you know, with these mantras, like, if you're not, uh, if you're not failing, you're not innovating enough and, and fail fast and fail forward. And, and so some of that stigma has been, uh, has been removed, but um, there, there has to be even, even like for us, even as a nonprofit, we had to be willing you know, we didn't have some unlimited budget where we had a big R&D department. We had, and we're trying to retool a hundred-year-old spiritual institution for this uh, for this century. And so we had to pick some small things and be willing to take some risks and see where it led us. And and not everything we've done has succeeded, but I would say the majority have. And so if you can create a place where you can capture the ideas, have a small team vet them as well as possible, and then pick a handful and be willing to fail. Uh, you'll find your way to success because if you don't, you're just going to continue to shrink and and be stagnant. And we all know that when something is stagnant, it's probably dying. <laughs> right. Well, you know the um, if you look at uh, things from a personal point of view, like say you want to um, d- develop circuits or or there's something you want to do in your own personal life that you've you've never done before and all you do is stay in your head you think 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 about this new thing you want to do and it's tough taking that first step it's tough going into the void <laughs> into the abyss of the unknown but there's something that happens when you do engage um, the physical process of it, and I think that's where intuition has the ability to be birthed. In other words, if you stay in your head and you don't try anything, you don't actually try anything, you have no feedback. You have no information to build a sense of intuition. And the more you learn to trust, and and that has to come. I I really like what you say about giving yourself permission to fail, because if you don't, if you're so afraid of that failure and you're not willing to take those steps, you're never going to, excuse me, get intuitive about the change that you so desperately need. Does that make sense? It does. In fact, you're really spot on. If you look at some of the ancient uh, spiritual teachings and even some of the more modern ones, um, <clears throat> what they tell you is the creative process is made up of three or four things. So it starts in mind. Everything everything ever that's ever been created has started as an idea in someone's mind, right? And then yep. so to, to bring that to manifestation, you, you have the thoughts. You then begin to put words to that. So you have thoughts and words and even emotion. These days are saying the more you can imagine with emotion – uh, the greater chances for manifestation. But the last step in the creative, so you have to have your thoughts, words, all aligned, and the last step is to take action. It doesn't have to be big action, but you have to be in alignment. So if you're thinking the right things and you're saying the right things, but you're not doing anything, to your point, you're not fulfilling the, the full creative process. When all three of those are aligned and you're moving in that direction, that's when the energy will flow and uh, your chances for creation and manifestation go through the roof nice i like that well you know the i i'm no sproctologist but when i look at the uh, 
the wake of our past, so to speak, we've had really like institutionalized thinking for a very long time. What comes to mind is uh, a company called SpaceX that, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a space astronaut rocket junkie. I grew up in the Apollo era and I remember watching men walk on the moon the NASA would make these Ferraris, just handcrafted Ferraris, and lob them into the ocean, one-shot ponies, and and sink them to the bottom of the sea and to run make another Ferrari. And here comes SpaceX, and they're like, why don't we make a Chevy? Why don't we make a Chevy and then teach it how to land? And that company started in 2003, and now they're the highest payload capacity into orbit company on the planet, on the planet. And what I'm getting at is maybe what some of these industries are, are uh, going to need to to live in the new narrative, the new dynamic, is a much deeper overhaul of why – what what they provide as a service, how they provide it, how do you how do you get bold with this idea of of harvesting and vetting and then executing the inspiration of the entire um, employee base of the company? Well, it is certainly it's not easy, but. The the thing that uh, when I as I mentioned earlier when I first returned to Unity there hadn't been a lot of innovation and so and I had come from a global leading company where I had experienced world class product development and world class innovation processes and procedures and so I was able to borrow from them and and it, and it's a lot of work but you just to create little things create a Trello board uh, if you have to where you can just capture these things and if you don't have enough people to to do a lot of vetting, just do it as much as you can on each idea um, with volunteers, if you will, or create small committees. But the, the, uh, there are so many ideas. And here's the thing, by the way, ideas, these ideas that I'm talking about, they're not all brand new things like you mentioned, like a complete paradigm shift where you completely transform the organization. You would be amazed at how much money can be saved or earned uh, beyond what you're currently earning by just overhauling your internal processes with some creativity and innovation around how you're doing things. So many of us get stuck in, in uh, doing the same processes over and over year after year. We forget to sometimes pause and look in the mirror and say, okay, how are we doing this? What's continuing to work? What's not working? Your business has changed, but you haven't changed anything internally. So even the process of just continuous improvement and using that as your innovative spark can create a, a great deal of change um, and, and additional profitability, if you will, uh, in terms of, of uh, where you're moving forward from a transformational perspective. But gosh, Les, there's really no secret formula for how you become bold and how you do these things. It's just a matter of being willing to say, I'm going to try it. You know, we're going to try to capture some of these ideas. We're going to try to vet some, and we're going to take a risk. And I think uh, when you're willing to do that, and the, the reason for the vetting is so that you're taking a calculated risk. So early on, many of the things we did would generate an ROI. We could calculate pretty clearly what that ROI timeframe would be. And so as long as we had a pretty compelling ROI, we felt really comfortable taking the risk. And we started small, and as those paid off, 
we began to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I guess as to the how, I would say start small and begin to snowball it. And uh, over time, I think you'll be able to move to a place where you're really doing some nice, nice large innovation and uh, you're getting some good payoffs from it. Well, we were we were talking before the show started, and you mentioned the notion that the old school model of the corporation holding all the cards, so to speak, as it related to talent in their employees, uh, doesn't as apply as much as it used to, where employees um, don't feel like they have to commit to a thirty year. Um, employment and and they're much more willing to look at other dynamics when it comes to the employee themselves how does how does this cultural um, perception perspective help you retain talent well so all of the elements that i talk about so this this idea See, part of the challenge organizations have is they try to do all the right things from a culture perspective. So they'll, they'll create the meditation rooms and they'll have the quarterly socials and they've got a great benefits package and they've got places for their employees to go and relax. But where they miss the boat is in a consistent leadership philosophy. And so what I mean by that is if you've got someone in the organization who's using a servant leadership philosophy, which is, is basically – in a servant leadership culture, the leadership people are kind of the least important in the organization. Their role is, is specifically to provide tools and resources for those associates that are working directly with your constituents. The tools, the resources, an environment where they can be productive, and just really there to support them in doing their best job and being their best professional self. And so if you have someone who's leading that way, you've got this great culture, and you've got someone who's leading that way, the people that are working for that person – they're, they're, they're loving your culture and your company, and they're engaged and they feel supported. But then on the other side of the, the building, you've got someone who's leading through fear and intimidation. Same company, same great items I talked about in culture in terms of benefits and, and a great campus and all that stuff, but their experience day-to-day is miserable because they're anxious and fearful in terms of, of their job. And so now you've created this disconnect, uh, same, like I said, same people, two completely different experiences of the org. And so one of the things you have to do is create this consistent leadership philosophy. And then when you've done this and you've created this culture, um, I wish I could, I wish I could, uh, and by the way, this isn't just me. If you, there's data out there now, this isn't just Jim's ideas. There's tons of data on how these, these cultures are creating uh, more stable, more engaged and greater productivity across the board. But I can tell you some anecdotal data from where I'm at. When I first returned to Unity World Headquarters, the average tenure was between four and five years. And after the work we've done uh, using some of the elements in this book from a culture perspective, the average tenure now is 11 years. So when you can create a culture where, where, like I said, people feel seen and heard, and as you mentioned earlier, the workforce now is demanding it. The pandemic shifted everything. And so associates have a lot more leverage. They can pick and choose. I'm not going to work for this company because I want to work at home. I don't have to do that job anymore because I'm just not going to tolerate that. And so you really have to start to position your organizations for this next generation of seeker. It doesn't mean they're in charge. It doesn't mean they're in control. It just means if you want the top talent, then you're going to have to put together uh, a different sort of package that makes it, number one, appealing, and then number two, as you mentioned, um, 
productive and um, gosh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Fulfilling enough for them to stay right. for a long time because they will, they will stay if they have that kind of environment. Yeah. The, there's something about the satisfaction of contributing to the effort of the group where, um, where when you get inspiration as an employee, as a, as a, a part of a group and you share that and it, and it, uplifts and promotes the intention and effort of the group that just flat out feels good but so i mean if you make a widget that's got to be um one like a a bolt uh, a nut for a bolt it's going to be hex it's going to be half inch the threads are going to be at this increment how do you how do you innovate something that is so locked down with standards as far as a company culture, how do you bring innovation to um, something where there's rigidness? Because I think a lot the reason a lot of managers tend to keep things locked down is they're afraid of of uh, opening the gates, so to speak, of of tipping the cart over if if they get too too. Um, carefree about letting new ideas into the company dynamic, if that makes sense. Certainly it does. And when you're in those rigid environments, then you really have to sort of go beyond the scope of just that. So is there innovation you can do in the manufacturing? Is there innovation in the, in the materials that you use that might differentiate you from the other bolts in the industry? And then here's the, <laughs> uh, another unique thing. Is there something from a service perspective, a warranty perspective, a guarantee perspective, or even how you apply that bolt that you could develop um, based on your knowledge of that particular component? So you step outside of your core competency a little bit, you know, to maybe the wrench that that uh, that you use to tighten this bolt that that it is unique and it's you know custom for this, and so it creates greater strength and and so forth. But I hope you get where I'm going here. But the idea is. You can look at exact your widget exactly and say, okay, how can I innovate around that? How we make it, how we produce it, how we distribute it, how we warranty it, how we service. So there's a lot of things there, and are there add-on services? So can in addition to just selling you this widget, can I sell you some professional services where our guys can come in and, and install the widgets for you, and you don't have to do that. We just take that right off your plate. So you can innovate in, in that regard as well. Does that help? Sure, I like that. Now, um, to to take a a big step back from this conversation because we're pretty much talking about the workplace, but there's um, there's a relationship with uh, institutions, if you will. For example, uh, governments sometimes governments. Um, have lost a sense of connectivity to their constituents and and the idea of a community or a culture overall it, if i think back at 2019 um the, i think the sense of community wasn't as um front and center perhaps in people's minds i i know we've been talking about the workplace but I really feel like the uh, the collective consciousness 
of humanity is hungry for a new narrative that honors people, everybody, that honors the the human element of all of our systems. If you look at um, if if the normal has been turned on its head and we have this clean slate, so to speak, if we were to grow a new normal, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just metaphorically, we we reestablish a new dynamic, a new narrative for humanity. How could some of these principles uh, come into our our cultures and our communities? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I'll I'll say uh, everything less everything you're describing, of course, has to happen within the individual. And so, what we really need is sort of a a collective awakening to self-awareness. Once we really understand ourselves, begin to understand that, you know, we're not our thoughts and we can change our thoughts. And you alluded to this in your, your open talking about how we're beyond just this physical body. When we can get in touch with that and then beyond going even beyond that, begin to understand what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are the things that trigger us because of our life experiences? When you can become aware of those, and then become <clears throat> and have a you know a healthy level of self acceptance, then you become more uh, fulfilled, uh, if you will, and you become more confident, and you sort of you begin to have this um, place where you're not worried about you know what you look like or what people are going to think or this or that or the other, and you have this state of contentment. Why is that important? Because I alluded to it earlier, but I'll talk about it in depth now. The more content you feel and the better you are taking care of yourself, the better decisions you're able to make. And when you operate from this place of center, you show up and respond differently. So instead of reacting to something that just happened, you're able to be in this place of center and respond and choose your response instead of just an emotional outburst and reaction. So all that to say, I think if we can collectively sort of um, begin to develop some maturity in our own self-awareness, then you can then begin to apply that in the other areas of your life. So now I'm confident. I've done my inside work. I understand myself. Now I'm in a position to where how can I go out and create an environment where those that I work with or that I serve with in my community, how can I help them achieve that same level? Um, I I do think you're, you're right. People are hungry for it. I don't know that people know how to get there. And so my, my statement would be that it, it has to start with our own self-awareness. We have to get right on our own inside before we can then go out and, and impact the outside because everything we do is from the inside out. I don't know if that makes sense, but your thoughts, your words, and actions, they all come from, from your heart and mind. And so when you can get that right, then everything that goes out into the world is, is much more, it's, it's from a much more centered place. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Very well said. You know, one of the things you just said was choose your response. Choose your response and and, um, not have an emotional reflex. Uh, With so much change, and and I think it caught the the whole flipping planet off guard, uh, 2020 and whatnot, that perhaps we've fallen into this perpetual reaction to yet another headline, yet another change in the collective, yet another um, stumbling block, so to speak, to to learn how to 
choose your response. I mean, it's it's almost like we've fallen in a, a, a raging river and we've been tumbling with the current. And until we can get our footing again, in other words, if we stay in a um, the same reactive pattern to yet another headline and we don't ever get our footing back and and get our wherewithal to make changes in the storm, make changes in the the current of change, to choose your response um, allows you to create an, a new outcome that wouldn't have happened if you stayed in a reactive pattern, if that makes sense. How, how could we go about, um, what are some tips that you can think of to help us uh, change our stance with th- this wave after wave of change that we've been seeing over the past few years? So you're spot on. I believe that the world is in this collective state of fight or flight, and we're all suffering from some form of adrenal fatigue at this point. But to, to help us get there, so meditation is what works for me. And I know when I say the word meditation, a whole bunch of people on the, listening to the show probably just groaned because they don't, you know, when do I have time to do that and so forth. So I'll give you a little anecdote. I didn't, I wasn't a big meditator guy at all. And I was, I happened to be around a lot of people who swore by it. And so I finally gave in and said I would try it. So I bought 110 books on meditation because I wanted to be perfect at it. <laughs> and what I learned after reading all these books and after years of trying it is there is no right way to meditate. And here's the thing. Meditation for everybody doesn't mean sitting in the silence. For some people, they can achieve that sort of meditative space. And all we're talking about here is stopping the chattering mind. Meditation is not about stopping the thoughts, but it's about being able to lean away from the constant stream of thoughts, not get caught up in them. Because when you're caught up in them, you're not in the present moment. You're somewhere in the future or you're, you're rehashing something that happened yesterday. So it's just getting to a space where you can lean away from the constant chatter and have, create an opening. Why am I creating an opening? Well, I want to create this opening because if the mind's not chattering away, now I've created the space for what you were talking about earlier, which is inspiration or intuition. There is a universal intelligence and instincts that runs through every living creature, and we have access to that. When we can still the mind in some, in, in some form, we create this opening for inspiration and guidance and, and ideas to come through that we may not have had. Uh, because we weren't listening to anything but the chattering mind prior. So how do you get there? Meditation in the silence works for me. Yoga works for people. Some people can get there just by gardening, by sitting in nature. Others get there in their workouts. So whatever that is for you, where you can get to that place where you sort of are able to lean away from the mind and be really present in your own, uh, in your own centeredness and in your body, that's the space you're looking for. And so when you do that more and more often less, what happens is all of a sudden that practice begins to move with you. So that sense of relaxation you have in meditation, you're able to step into that really quickly. So something comes up, it triggers you emotionally, and all of a sudden you're able to take a deep breath and you notice yourself, wow, I'm pausing and I'm taking a deep breath. And it's in that second where you can then say, okay, I'm going to choose how I'm going to respond here. And your response doesn't always have to be immediately relative. I mean, in some cases you may say, 
wow, this really caught me off guard. I need to step away for a minute and, you know, gather myself, or can we meet later? And, and in some cases, you're not able to do that. But the point is, the more that you're able to touch this space of center, the more you'll be able to call upon it, and you'll honestly walk around and show up differently in the world. You'll begin to respond differently because you're operating from this place of, of center uh, rather than just this constant chaos of the, the chattering mind. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Well, now, um, let's look at a, like a before and after. Um, imagine you going back in your life before you've um, learned about these principles and perhaps early in your career uh, as a manager and then fast forward to today. What are the differences? I mean, what would it look like to an observer for yourself personally as well as the institutions you've worked with? Well, I can tell you this. After I wrote this book, I thought I needed to sit down and write a letter to all of those people that uh, I was leading when I was a young manager because I was awful. You know, as I mentioned, I grew up in that, that fear and intimidation <laughs> mode. And so I had a little bit of that in me. And the other thing is, um, I didn't, un- I didn't have a, a lot of self-awareness and, and I wasn't centered. So I'd get triggered really easy. At a, so I would overcome my insecurity with a big ego as a leader, right? I thought being the boss was telling people what to do. And when people would challenge me rather than being open and uh, secure enough to hear those ideas, I'd get insecure and defensive. And so that's what I looked like back in my early days is I had a, uh, I was, I was, I had a healthy dose of insecurity that I tried to mask with a lot of ego and I was largely defensive and I would rather you just do what I said to do than, than, uh, you know, try to question it or um, add anything to it because of my command and control style at that same period of time, I thought that the only way to do it was my way. So I didn't leave a lot of room for innovation or for other people to bring their own creativity to it. So, but over time, as I began to, not, I didn't like the way I, felt when I would get triggered in a meeting or my emotions would get the best of me in a situation. And so that's really when I began to do some of this work, which was to learn to be able to pause when I felt myself becoming emotional, ask for some time to step away and gather myself. And it took a long time and it takes a lot of work, but um, that, that would be the difference in, in the, the young me as a leader, um, unseasoned, if you will, versus today where I've really learned to, uh, to be able to do what we talked about earlier, which is choose my responses rather than react to whatever shows up before me. Nice. Very nice. Well, so what's next for you? Do you think this book is uh, all-inclusive or do you think there's going to be another another um, level or uh, what's on the horizon for you? Well, there's two things. I think you touched on this in your open. I don't think we've settled yet in what the new normal is. And so, you know, sometime down the road here, there may be an opportunity to revisit this book and, and update it based on sort of where we land in terms of a, of a new normal. But in between now and then, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, in fact, I'm working on developing um, a couple of workshops, workshop formats, where I can go in and, and uh, create some content and meet with small groups of leaders to talk about how you can implement some of these things in an organization. Um, and so that's really what I'm focused on now is, is right now we're getting out and publicizing the book a lot, 
it'll be followed up by this opportunity to do some some sort of keynote speaking or some workshop and breakout sessions. And I think that'll be enough to, to keep me busy for the next couple of years. Nice. Well, now share with our audience how to get your book and also share if you have any services that, that you like to consult companies. Do I mean, give us a whole picture as far as your material and your platform. Sure. So I have created a website, IamJimBlake.com. That is totally dedicated to the book. And so uh, you'll, you'll find out there, you'll see examples of the gems of wisdom that are included in each, each of the chapters. And so you can really dig into some of the early content in the book and get a feel for whether it might be a fit for you. Uh, you can also purchase it on Amazon. It's, it's there and listed with, with some good descriptions and the ability to, to read a little bit of it. And in terms of um, uh, services left, what I'm doing now is, is I'm being asked occasionally to keynote and, and do some speaking at certain conferences. And so there's a form available on the website uh, to request that as well. Well, very nice. Um, <laughs> it's uh it's an exciting time to be alive, and, and I really think that uh, humanity is evolving right before our eyes. And so I really appreciate people like you that have have uh, written the book that you've written to bring a new perspective and a new understanding of of the human element in, in the workplace. So... I really applaud that. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? No, I would just say, um, you know, if you take away anything uh, from what we talked about here and you're looking for a place to start, you know, find yourself a, a book or something to start with around self-awareness and just begin to work on yourself and get to know yourself and begin to develop your own sense of healthy self-acceptance. That's where you can start. Once you're solid there, you'll really be able to make a difference, not only in your life, but in the world. So uh, I just uh, bless you and thank you for the opportunity to be with you today, Les. Well, Jim, I think you've written uh, a really powerful book because it deals with the, the power of the human persona. I think the book you've written is very timely and and the principles you've outlined in your book, I think, will become more fundamental to the rank-and-file workplace and in the successful companies of the future. So I want to I want to thank you for everything you've done, and uh, I've really enjoyed this episode. It's been very very delightful having you on the show tonight. So thank you. Thank you, sir. We've been talking with Jim Blake, and the topic tonight has been the Zen Executive. It's it's his uh, latest book, and like I say, boy howdy, the the human persona that's the wild card in every hand. If if uh, if you take the time to understand the minutia, if you will, of the human element, whether it be in a business or a community or a church or um, even even a country, the, the human persona, the human element is really the decider of what's going to happen. Like Jim said, everything that has been created started as inspiration in the human persona. And 
with so much change on the um, horizon for humanity, it's going to be inspiration in the human persona. People like you, the listener, you can be inspired about your own life and you can be inspired about a new dynamic. Just I had mentioned how the the space and, and rocket industry has been turned on its head. I I bet you a lot of the institutions, uh, certainly our academic um, platforms, um, I see a lot of change in, in how we grow the human persona, how we grow the human potential of our community, of our culture, of our country. It and the the countries, the academic institutions that truly understand what the human persona is and just how powerful, just how powerful the human persona can be, I think we'll see new new types of academic structure. What I'm saying is I think a lot of people are going to be inspired in in ways that are so unconventional from the past because the past is based on, quote, normal, unquote. People are going to get inspiration about new dynamics. And when when I first went to write a book, my, uh, my heart said uh, – Write a book, and my argue, my ego argued. <laughs> my ego, my ego didn't want anything to do with writing a book. And and fast forward to now, writing is a great passion of mine. It brings me great joy. If you get inspiration over and over and over again about a new narrative or a new dynamic in your life. Um, give it some space. Give it some thought. Give it a chance to to grow and blossom in you. Change can be uh, difficult if if we don't trust ourselves. And how do we trust ourselves? We we become intuitive by trying, by exerting, by taking those steps. Hey, I want to thank you, the listener. Here we are at the end of this, ep- this episode, and here you are, too. You showed up for yourself, and I appreciate that. You know, this is really an exciting time to be alive. The ability to um, transform the human condition has never been more prominent than it is right now. Normal's up in the air, and that's just unheard of in our past. And here you are. Imagine that. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.